Since September, we've been looking at the book of Jeremiah, and every week as we've turned to this book, we've started with this image on the screen behind me, an image of clay being worked and shaped in the hands of a potter. It's an image that captures the message, really, of the whole book of Jeremiah. And this morning, we come to the section that gives us that image and explains it for us. So you'll find it in Jeremiah chapter 18. And if you're using one of the church Bibles, that's page 778. And in the larger print Bibles, 1205. Jeremiah chapter 18. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me. He said, can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does, declares the Lord. Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. Now, therefore, say to the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says. Look, I am preparing a disaster for you and devising a plan against you. So turn from your evil ways, each one of you, and reform your ways and your actions. But they will reply, it's no use. We will continue with our own plans. We will all follow the stubbornness of our evil hearts. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. Inquire among the nations, who has ever heard anything like this? A most horrible thing has been done by virgin Israel. Does the snow of Lebanon ever vanish from its rocky slopes? Do its cool waters from distant sources ever stop flowing? Yet... My people have forgotten me. They burn incense to worthless idols, which made them stumble in their ways in the ancient paths. They made them walk in byways on roads not built up. Their land will be an object of horror and of lasting scorn. All who pass by will be appalled and will shake their heads. Like a wind from the east, I will scatter them before their enemies. I will show them my back and not my face in the day of their disaster. They said, come, let's make plans against Jeremiah. 
for the teaching of the law by the priest will not cease, nor will counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophets. So come, let's attack him with our tongues and pay no attention to anything he says. Listen to me, Lord. Hear what my accusers are saying. Should good be repaid with evil? Yet they have dug a pit for me. Remember that I stood before you and spoke on their behalf to turn your wrath away from them. So give their children over to famine. Hand them over to the power of the sword. Let their wives be made childless and widows. Let their men be put to death, their young men slain by the sword. Let a cry be heard from their houses when you suddenly bring invaders against them. For they have dug a pit to capture me and have hidden snares for my feet. But you, Lord, know all their plots to kill me. Do not forgive their crimes or blot out their sins from your sight. Let them be overthrown before you. Deal with them in the time of your anger. This is God's word. If we just go back to that image. How many of you have ever watched a potter at work? Quite a few. Have any of you ever tried it? It requires a lot of skill. I'm sure you know that. And it's not very common today because our household bowls and pots tend to be mass-produced. Potters are more likely today to be making decorative items rather than functional ones. But in Jeremiah's time, potters were not only highly skilled artists, they were highly in demand. People needed the things that potters were making for cooking, for carrying water. And so potters were busy. And here in chapter 18, God tells Jeremiah to go and visit a potter. And what he sees at the potter's house, he's then to use as God's own way of explaining his relationship with human beings, how he interacts with men and women. So picturing God as a potter, it's not a bright idea that Jeremiah had. God chose this picture to help us understand the truth about him and the truth about ourselves. The passage we just read divides into two halves. To begin with, verses 1 to 10 give us the image and explain it for us. Jeremiah is shown clay in the potter's hands. If you look again at verse 3, Jeremiah says, So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot shaping it as seemed best to him. It's important to realize there are actually two stages in the potter's work, or at least there are two stages that are relevant for understanding this book. Jeremiah here is watching the first stage of the process. The potter works with moist, pliable clay as it spins around on its wheel, on his wheel. That little revolving table that's sitting right in front of him. The second stage involves firing the clay in a kiln. Once the clay has been hardened in that way, there's no more chance to reshape it. 
chapter 19 is going to deal with that second stage of the process. But here, the clay that Jeremiah sees has not yet been hardened. It's not yet finally fixed. And as Jeremiah watches the potter working with the clay, God tells him that what he is seeing illustrates two significant truths about God's relationship to Judah. And they're truths that apply to all of humanity. The first truth is that God is sovereign. He is completely in control. You notice in verse 4, it is the potter who shapes the clay and forms the clay as it seems best to him. And in verse 6, God says, so are you in my hand, Israel. There's no sense whatsoever in which the clay shapes and forms itself. The potter is the one in control. He has mastery over the clay. And that truth applies to human beings as well. The first time that word form appears in Scripture is in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2 describes the creation of the first man, and we're told, the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. The human race is literally clay, formed in the beginning by God. And ever since, each new life has been formed by God. Back in Jeremiah chapter 1, God told the prophet, again using the same word, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And in fact, the word translated potter in our Bibles comes from that word formed. When Jeremiah goes to see the potter, he's watching someone who is literally a former of clay. And the God of the Bible insists he is the former of you and me. He begins in the womb, and from beginning to end, he forms us as it seems best to him. John Mackay says, the parable of the potter is an uncompromising assertion of the sovereign, authoritative control of God. He is in charge, not just theoretically in charge, but actually really governing what goes on here on earth. And what he produces matches exactly what he intends. Now, for some of us here this morning, that is a very comforting, reassuring truth. For those who trust God's wisdom, who believe that he knows best, his sovereign control is something that gives us unshakable confidence. Whatever's going on in our lives, however much we might be flustered and anxious on the surface, and we often will be flustered and anxious on the surface. None of us are made out of stone. Situations in our lives get to us, but deep, deep down, we rest in the truth that he knows best and he will do what's best. 
The truth of God's sovereignty gives us peace. However, for others, the Bible's teaching about God's sovereign control makes them angry. Because they want to believe they are the masters of their fate. They are the captains of their soul. And they do not appreciate being compared to clay in the divine potter's hands. But just as we saw a couple of weeks ago that sin is engraved at the core of who we are as human beings, so here we run into another foundational teaching of Scripture. There is only one God, and it's not me or you. There is only one master and captain of the universe. And there's no better way to get that truth across than this picture of the potter and the clay. And that's why the Bible comes back to this picture in several other places. It's the first lesson of the picture. But God's sovereignty is not the only lesson to be learned here. The second lesson is equally crucial because it wipes away any ideas we might have that, well, it doesn't matter what we do then because we're just clay in God's hands. God does not allow us to take the picture that way. He immediately adds that our response matters. God is not a tyrant. The definition of a tyrant is a ruler who exercises authority in an oppressive, arbitrary way. A ruler who rules unjustly. And these verses show us the sovereign God of the Bible is not like that. Look again at verse 4. Jeremiah watches the potter, and he says, the pot he was making from the clay, or the pot he was shaping from the clay, was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot. To be marred means to be spoiled or disfigured. We're talking here about the same lump of clay. Initially, it was shaping up to become a certain kind of pot, but it ended up becoming a different kind of pot. So what was it that made the difference? The difference was how the clay responded to the potter's touch. We've already seen the potter is absolutely in control of what happens to the clay. And now we're told the way the clay responds to his touch is significant. Its responsiveness or its lack of responsiveness genuinely plays a part in what kind of pot emerges at the end of the process. Look how God applies that aspect of the picture in verse 7. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. Remember, these words come in the context of what we've already heard from God. He is in control. He is sovereign. 
And here God explains how he has chosen to exercise his sovereignty. He could have ruled any way he wanted, but God has chosen to exercise his rule in such a way that the response of human beings is important. It has genuine significance. A moment ago, I quoted from John Mackay on God's authoritative control, and here he explains the second part of the picture. God's sovereignty is exercised in a situation that God himself has set up. Divine sovereignty is not heavenly tyranny. God has created mankind so that there may be an intelligent and rational interaction between heaven and earth. The point is, God, the sovereign potter, has chosen to give significance to the clay's response. So in the case of Judah, the people Jeremiah has been preaching to for years at this point, God has been warning them again and again and again, disaster is coming if you don't turn from your sin. You are on course to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed. But if Judah takes God's warning seriously and repents of its evil, then God says he will relent and not inflict the disaster he had planned. Does that take away God's control? No. From the very start, God has been saying, if you heed my warnings and turn to me in repentance, I will change my attitude to you and spare you. That is how God set things up. It's not God coming up with a new plan. This is God doing what he said. And likewise, if he makes a promise of blessing to a people, their response is important. If they turn away and refuse to obey, they will not receive the promised blessing. Again, that is not God changing his mind. It's God doing what he said. From the very start, he explained his blessings are for those who will listen and obey. His blessings will still come, whatever, but those who turn away from him won't receive those blessings. And obviously, God is not talking here about the people's response on one particular day of their lives or even one particular year. When God talks about a nation turning away, he means a long-term, settled rejection of him by the people. If the Old Testament shows us anything, it shows us God is almost ridiculously patient with these disobedient people. He shows patience for generations. So what verses 5 to 10 set out for us is a double truth that we find all the way through Scripture. God is absolutely sovereign. And... Human beings are rightly held responsible for what they do. God has given human beings the dignity of responsibility. And God's sovereignty does not make our decisions meaningless. And our decisions do not diminish God's sovereignty in any way. He is still and he is always completely in control. 
Now, the Bible does not explain the finer details of how those things are both true at the same time. It simply assures us they are both true at the same time. If you and I understood those finer details, we would be God. As human beings, our greatest wisdom lies in accepting that both these things are true and then living accordingly. And that's the focus of the second half of the passage. It teaches us about responding to the potter's touch. If our response to God matters, just like the response of the clay on the wheel matters, if our response plays a part in what kind of pot will turn out to be, then we need to know how God intends to shape us. The potter sitting at the wheel uses his hands to shape the clay and mold it. But we're not actually clay sitting on a potter's wheel. That's just a picture. So, how does God intend to mold you and me then? He's not going to prod us with his fingers. So, what does he use to shape us? What is it you and I are either going to be resisting or submitting to in our lives? Well, verses 11 to 23 show us responding to the divine potter's touch means responding to his message and his messenger. First, in verses 11 to 17, it means responding to his message. Through Jeremiah, God has been giving Judah his message for years already. And it comes again in verse 11. God says to Jeremiah, Now therefore, after what I've just said about the potter, say to the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says, Look, I am preparing a disaster for you and devising a plan against you. So turn from your evil ways, each one of you, and reform your ways and your actions. That message is the equivalent of the potter applying pressure to the clay spinning on his wheel. He's working to shape it. How is the clay going to respond? Well, God says to Jeremiah in verse 12, but they will reply, it's no use. We will continue with our own plans. We will all follow the stubbornness of our evil hearts. Now, it's unlikely that people are literally going to say that. The Lord here is giving his assessment of what they're actually doing. They don't think of themselves as stubborn and evil, but that's what they are. And this verse tells us we've almost reached the point of no return for Judah. God knows they are so hardened in their defiance of him, they're so addicted to their idolatry, they're not going to respond to his call to repentance. They're like clay on the potter's wheel that is persistently unresponsive to his touch. And that is an outrage. Look at God's words in verse 13. Inquire among the nations, has who has ever heard anything like this? A most horrible thing has been done by virgin Israel. 
Does the snow of Lebanon ever vanish from its rocky slopes? Do its cool waters from distant sources ever stop flowing? The implication is, no, of course they don't. Those things are always there. Yet, God says in verse 15, my people have forgotten me. They burn incense to worthless idols, which made them stumble in their ways in the ancient paths. They made them walk in byways, in roads not built up. Verse 13 mentions virgin Israel. The idea there is that the people of Israel are like a young woman who's still under the guardianship of her father. The Israelites are certainly living in God's place. The land they're in is God's place. But Israel is, is like a wild daughter misbehaving in her dad's house. Israel has done a horrible thing in God's land. And to understand what that horrible thing is, we need to be aware of a verse from earlier in the book. Back in chapter 6, God said this to Judah at an earlier stage in Jeremiah's preaching. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. In chapter 6, God said, Judah, you have a choice to make. It's as if you're standing at a crossroads. You have to choose which road you're going to take. You have to choose the life path you're going to follow. And you need to ask for the ancient paths. In other words, the path you need is not a new one. It's not something that's just been dreamt up by some Canaanite or Amorite idol worshiper. The path you need has been there for a very, very long time. But of course, we know just because something's old, that doesn't automatically mean it's good. Sin is as old as the human race, but it has never been good. And so, God says, Judah, the path you're looking for is ancient and it's the good way, the only good way. When you find it, walk in it. Go along the good path, and you will find what you need. Rest for your souls. All of that really was a call to go back to God's Word, His law given through Moses. That Word from God showed the people the way out of idolatry, it showed them how to obey and honor the true and living God. God's word opened up the ancient and good path for their lives. That call to Judah came years earlier in Jeremiah's ministry. And here in chapter 18, God explains how Judah responded to that call. In verse 15, my people have forgotten me. They burn incense to worthless idols, which made them stumble in their ways in the ancient paths. They made them walk in byways, on roads not built up. In other words, the people of Judah rejected God's word. They were like people standing at a crossroads, and they chose the path being followed by the nations around them, the path of idol worship. And that has turned out to be a rubbish path. It looked great when they started out on it, but it has led them into byways that get them nowhere because they're not proper roads at all. 
the trails that go into the forest and then just peter out. People of Judah has, have followed the path of idol worship and now they have no clue where they're going. They're lost in life without any clear path. So what this talk about roads and paths is telling us is that Judah has rejected God's message to them. So in terms of the main picture of our passage, in rejecting God's word, Judah is like clay that will not submit to the potter's touch. And so, the potter is at the point of ceasing to work with the clay. He will take the clay as it is in all its ugliness and misshapenness, and he will fire that clay in his kiln. It will be forever fixed, verse 16, as an object of horror and of lasting scorn. All who pass by will be appalled and will shake their heads. What that means in practice is Judah will be overrun by her enemies and the result will not be pretty. Responding to the divine potter's touch means doing what Judah has failed to do. It means responding to God's message, listening to and obeying his word, the Bible. And it means something else too. It means responding to not only his message, but also his messenger. Verses 18 to 23 go through the same steps as we've just seen in verses 11 to 17. They parallel those verses. But now, the focus is on Judah's response to God's messenger, Jeremiah. In verse 12, Judah said, we'll reject God's word and continue with our own plans. In verse 18, they say, come, let's make plans against Jeremiah. For the teaching of the law by the priest will not cease, nor will counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophets. So come, let's attack him with our tongues and pay no attention to anything he says. Those who reject God's message also reject his messenger. And this verse tells us God's messenger is not in step with the popular wisdom of his day. He's not even in step with the popular religion of his day. Notice, the people who are plotting against Jeremiah, they're not against all priests. They're not against all wise men and women. They're not against all people who claim to be prophets. They like the ones who tell them what they want to hear. And what the people want to hear is that everything is fine and they have nothing to worry about despite their sin their idolatry, and their rejection of God's Word. And it turns out these plotters, they're not content to take issue with Jeremiah's message. They want to attack Jeremiah himself. First with their tongues, and then we're told in verse 23, it has progressed as far as plots to kill Jeremiah. Now that may be a reference back to the plot we heard about in chapter 11 where the people of Jeremiah's own hometown made a plan to kill him. Or by this stage, there may be new murder plots against him. In any case, 
The significant point is the, potter, the plotters do not distinguish between the messenger and his message. In verse 20, Jeremiah says they've dug a pit for him. That may mean they had a literal pit waiting to throw him into. Later in the book, he does end up in a hole in the ground. Or this could mean his enemies are looking for ways to trap him in his words and discredit him. In verse 22, he says, they have hidden snares for my feet. But whatever the exact details of this is, Jeremiah has a growing number of enemies. And yet he has done nothing wrong. He is hated by the people because they hate his message. It's like the message and the messenger have become one. They can't be separated anymore. And so when Jeremiah calls for judgment, as he does in verses 21 to 23, all Jeremiah is doing in those verses is repeating God's announcement of judgment. It's already come in verses 16 and 17. And what we see in this passage with Jeremiah, the message and the messenger becoming one, it's a little hint to us of what will happen to Jesus centuries after this. God the Father sent His Son, calling men and women to turn from their sin. In that sense, Jesus was like the other prophets who'd already come before Him. But Jesus was different in one very significant way. Jesus did not say, turn to God and be saved. He said, turn to me and be saved. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So in Jesus, the message and the messenger came together in a way they never had before. And like the faithful prophets before him, Jesus had many enemies. He was hated by those people who thought they were good enough already. People who didn't want their comfortable lives upset by Jesus' message. Those enemies plotted against him and they plotted successfully. Jesus was killed by his enemies. But he was raised again by his father. The divine potter in that situation took the evil deeds of evil men and he made something those evil men had never expected. He brought life out of death. And now the risen Jesus is the way to life. The message of Christianity actually is Jesus himself. He's the one we're to believe in and trust. The message and the messenger are one. If we're going to submit to the work of the divine potter, we must submit to Jesus as our Lord. If we're going to be formed into something useful by the potter, we must listen to Jesus and do what he says. And we will hear him as we pay attention to Scripture. Jesus said, he speaks through all the Scriptures. He said, they all testify about him. They are his words to us. 
And if you and I do that, if we come to this message, the Bible, receiving it all as the words of Jesus, ready to obey it, then the potter will shape us. He will form us little by little, faithfully and skillfully. He will even take the ugliness of our past sin. He'll take the things that we regret so deeply, and He will shape it all somehow into something honorable and beautiful. The divine potter will turn you and me into works of art that display His greatness and bring Him glory. We must be responsive to His touch as it comes to us through His Word. And so this passage is a passage that every single one of us needs to respond to. Maybe some of us to come to Christ for the very first time and receive God's message and messenger at the same time. And for many of us, it will mean coming back and submitting ourselves to the potter's hands again, saying that we want him to shape us and mold us, even when that means squeezing us in certain ways. And to help us respond, the musicians are going to play a song called The Potter's Hands. It's not a new song. It may be familiar to uh, some of you. But as we listen, it gives us a chance to respond personally, maybe even using the words of this song as it's sung for us. <laughs> 